ABF Creative. ABF Creative. The following podcast contains emotional and graphic descriptions of death by gun violence and is not intended for children to listen to without parental consent. Newark officers responded to a location on reports of a shooting. The arriving officers observed two males suffering from apparent gunshot wounds. Both victims were transported to University Hospital, where one of the males was pronounced dead at 11.04 p.m. The identity of this victim is being withheld pending notification to next of kin. The second victim from this incident is being treated for non-life-threatening injuries. My name is Trina Jones, and I'm from Newark, New Jersey. My son, AJ, well, first of all, his actual name means amazing joy. It was a name that I came up with during a spiritual kind of path I was following. He was born four pounds, one ounce, Um, lefty, my only child. AJ was a very deliberate soul, I would say, very here completely. AJ was an artist, an artist not only of music and the written word, but he was an artist of people. And the reason why I say that, because he he was very good with people, regardless of where they came from and be it a disability or just, you know, someone without a disability, he was very, very good with people. AJ, as a child, was very inquisitive, very giving. AJ was extremely smart. At six years old, he was actually tested for gifted and talented, and he was labeled as gifted and talented at six. Um, I remember he was so bright that I had enrolled into Essex County for my own purposes, and after school, I would actually take him with me to classes. and. At a certain point, the professors realized that he was so inquisitive and so curious about what was going on on a blackboard and inside the classes that they would actually bring him work into class knowing that he would be there the next week. And um, they would actually give him prizes after the completion of these problems and, and reading lessons. There was nothing that AJ at a young age could not do or that he could not learn to the point of when I would bring home my math work from college, he would actually sit right next to me asking me questions of, of, you know, how do you do that? Why are you doing this? Can you teach me? To the point where a week or so later, he would be doing the same problem as me, maybe a shorter one, but he would complete it and it was actually correct. He, He taught me how to ride a bike when he was 10 years old. Um, as a child in Newark, I know that's kind of weird that I, I never knew how to <laughs> ride a bike. <laughs> but I never learned to ride a bike as a child. And at 10 years old, he had a friend that his father actually had bike parts. 
And AJ, you know, went down the street to his friend's father's house and got bike parts together and actually fashioned me a bike. And, and rode it down the street and said, Ma, come on, I'm gonna teach you how to ride a bike so we can ride together. And I said, AJ, no. I said, I'm gonna fall. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, no, Ma. He said, I'm gonna teach you. You're not gonna fall at all. Now he's 10 years old. And so I got on a 10 speed bike and I fell off because I don't know how to ride a bike. So um, he continued to help me. He got off his bike and like held it, you know, with him and his friend. And he's like, Ma, just go straight. And of course I go to the left and hit a pole. And he runs over there, Ma, you have to stay straight. And after, you know, him teaching me, he would not quit. It was something in him that said, I am not stopping. I'm not going to ride my bike. I'm not going to play with my friends until I know that you can ride this bike. So it was the end of the day, maybe an hour later. He's like, ride in front of me, Ma. And if you can ride the bike, then the lesson will be over. So I passed. I learned how to ride a bike and ended up riding with them for the rest of the week. But that was the essence of my son. That was the essence of who he was. That he would always try to figure out how he can make you better, even as a child. He would always try to figure out how to encourage. He was a child that would take care, you know, our elderly. I had an elderly grandmother and he would bring her food and make her bacon and sit there and watch Jeopardy and do crossword puzzles with her and also watch stories with her. He, he was a very old soul, extremely old soul. And um, that was AJ as a child. AJ was the only child, so AJ always wanted to be the leader of everything. With his friends, he always felt as though every one of his friends should have what he had. And so if they didn't, he would always, you know, bring them home so they could either spend a night or something like that. He would always, you know, okay, my friend doesn't have this. Can we buy it for him? Or, you know, he would always help whoever the underdog was. If there was, say, a fight or an argument or someone stealing something else or teasing someone else, he would always step in. Hey, stop, man. You're going to hurt him, man. And say, you know, that's wrong. And he would always be the one that would always step in. Even if he couldn't beat the person, he would always step in and um, befriend the underdog that no one wants to be friends with or, you know, everyone was teasing or everyone, you know, felt as though, oh, you know, he's so-and-so, you know, we're not going to play with him. He's not from here. We're not going to play with him. AJ would always take him under his arm and I would see him on a porch with this one single friend and um, he would be talking to him, bringing out his toys, coming in the house, playing his video games. That was him. He never felt as though anybody should be excluded from anything. I raised AJ as a single mother. Um, at 19, I had AJ. I had him December 7th, 1998. Um, he was born at 3.31 p.m. It's interesting fact, because I was born March 31st. So I always thought that that was like really cool that he was born at 3.31 p.m. and I was born 3.31.80. The synchronicity just seemed like really, really cool. He was born a preemie. I went to college soon after I birthed AJ. I went to uh, Wilberforce University in Ohio, which is one of the oldest, um, the oldest historically black colleges. And I took him with me. We went to college together. 
AJ, unfortunately, did not have a relationship with his father. That was a very violent relationship, and uh, his father wasn't able to change his behavior with his son, so we weren't able to continue that connection between the two. 15-year-old AJ was finding himself. Because he didn't have a father figure in his life, he did some of the same things a lot of males in our community do. They try to go out, find themselves in in bad neighborhoods and with negative circles. And he uh, struggled and made a few mistakes that ended him in some pretty interesting situations. 19-year-old AJ had already transitioned from the point of trying to find himself in circles of violence or, or circles of toxicity that he thought would define him. He had stopped hanging out with the wrong circles. He was actually transitioning and helping his fellow friends transition out of that as well. The 19-year-old AJ and the 6-year-old, 10-year-old AJ were a lot alike because he always wanted for his brothers what he wanted for himself. So if he transitioned out of a negative path or a toxic path, he always tried to bring his brothers with him. December 5th, 2018. I had just seen him. July, July 5th. I seen him at 8 o'clock p.m. And um, he came to me saying that his friend had just got shot and um, he was with the family trying to console them and they're trying to figure out what happened. And so I, I had come to come home to, you know, inquire more about what was going on because he was, I could tell on the phone that he was hurt. And so I said, I'm on my way. And so I came and, you know, he came to the car and said, you know, it gave me a little bit more details. He was a little upset. And so I tried to kind of talk more about it or whatever, give him a little time. And so um, he began to kind of open up a little bit more. He went to be with the family. I said, well, I'll see you later. I went to a friend's house and the next day I had all of these missed calls. And I'm like, well, you know, one of them was my work. And I'm like, what are they calling me for? I called back and they said, well, have you spoken to your son? I said, well, what do you know about my son? You know, and they said, well, we had a call from someone from, uh, from his father and said that he needs you to call him. I said, that's interesting. He hasn't been in his life for a long time. And so I instantly started to text my son. You know, AJ called me back. It's important. AJ called me back. I'm getting phone calls. What's going on? You must be still asleep. So um, I said, okay, let me go to the house. Drove all the way to the drove to the house, and as um, soon as I get to the door, there's a homicide uh, card in my door homicide detective. And I read it and I instantly said, oh, well, AJ must be a witness to some kind of, maybe this is the same situation he was talking about. And so my heart started beating. I don't know where, and and I opened up the door, took the card, opened up the door, and when I went in my house, there was another card on my stairs. And I said, well, how? AJ must be fine, because that means that 
He probably seen a card, went in the house, probably put it on the stairs, and continued on his way. Picked up that card, went upstairs, called the number. It went to voicemail. So now I'm getting antsy. So I leave a message for the detective. I leave another one, leave another one, leave another one. My friend said, look on Facebook, look on his page. I went to his page and it said, I can't believe it was you. Rest in peace, AJ. And I threw my phone across my living room. I said, well, they get this stuff wrong all the time with celebrities. Maybe they got the wrong person. Maybe they think it was him, but it really wasn't. So, I, you know, I was like, no, that can't be true. I said, no, my only child would not be killed. Like, no. And um, I called the detective again. I didn't, you know, I didn't become emotional because I didn't believe it. And I called the detective and he answered the phone. And I said, hello, this is Trina Jones. I got your card from my door. What's going on? And the detective said, Miss Jones, are you home? I said, yes. He said, well, I'm getting ready to come right now. I said, why? And he said, well, I, I'll, I'll tell you when I get there. So we hung up and I went in the living room and told my friend, I said, well, the detective is coming here, but I don't understand why he's coming here for. Why couldn't you just tell me what this is about on the phone? And so my friend is just, he, he's not paying attention to me because he already saw the Facebook post. So, you know, he's believing it. And I was like, you know, this is, this is not true. It was maybe two minutes from the time I spoke to the detective until the time he actually came. And I went downstairs and answered the door and he said, Trina Jones? I said, yes. He said, is your son AJ Jones? I said, yes. He said, what is his birthday? 12798. What's your birthday? 33180. Is this where you live? Yes. And then he said, well, took a deep breath, and he looked at me. He said, there's no easy way to say this. Your son was murdered last night. We're not sure why. And after that, I didn't hear anything else. Like, I literally could not hear anything that anyone said. I couldn't, I, I couldn't tell you if there were cars on the street. I couldn't tell you if it was day or night. <laughs> I couldn't tell you what was happening with me. I could not tell you if the detective was looking at me. I could not tell you anything about what else he said. All I remember saying is, where is he? And he said, well, he's at the coroner's office. He's at the morgue. I said, well, can I go and see who you say this person is that you say is my son? And he looked at me and said, Ma'am, it is just, I said, I don't know that. I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I said, I, I, I don't see any proof that my son is, is dead. I, that's not my son. I said, I, he, I have to see him. And he said, uh, well, he's already been identified. I said, no, the hell, he hasn't been identified. I'm his mother. I'm the only one that can identify my child. I'm the only one that can tell you if that's him. Any other identification is not valid. And he said, well, I don't know if the morgue is going to let you. I said, yes, the hell they will. I said, they will let me identify or that's not him. 
I said, so give me the number because I don't know what the hell you're talking about. And he said, yes, ma'am. I'll give you the number. I took the number and turned around and walked up the stairs. I don't know what he continued to say to my friend, but I walked up the stairs and I called the morgue and I told them, I said, you have my, you're supposed to have my son there. I need to come and identify this person. And he said, well, you know, he was already identified. I said, let me tell you something now. I don't give a damn who identified him. I'm his mother. I raised him. I gave birth to him naturally. 12798. He was four pounds, one ounce. No one else that can identify you can tell you these things. He has B plus blood. He's a lefty. I said, unless I come there and identify him, you do not have my son. And so they put me on the phone with the actual coroner. And I said, I have to come and identify my son. He said, no problem. We'll be open for the next two hours. So I said, okay. And hung up. And um, we drove down to the coroner's office. And in Newark, I guess within the last few years, they do not let you go in to see the body. They let you see a picture, a picture that they take with a camera and put it on the front of a file. And they came out with a picture on a file. And I looked at the picture. I said, oh, he's sleeping. I said, he's just sleep. And I turned around. And they said, ma'am, will you sign here? I said, yeah. Is this your son? He's sleeping. And I walked out of the morgue. And I went home and I, I got some blankets to bring to the morgue. Because I thought he had to be cold if that was him. But something inside of me, there was a cognitive dissonance between the reality and what wasn't the reality. Like, I saw it, but I didn't see it at the same time. And so I didn't cry. I was still texting him. AJ, text me back. These people are saying that you're in a morgue. AJ, this person actually looks like you. He just texts me back. And um, I just waited for him to text me back. And um, he didn't. And that was, that was the day that I found out. So my son, after I saw him that day at 8 o'clock, um, at 10 o'clock, he was walking to the store around the corner from Lincoln Street with a friend. And um, according to the prosecutor, um, three guys, um, I guess, were circling around the block and saw AJ and his friend and decided we're going to rob them. And uh, by the third time they circled, they stopped, uh, jumped out the car, and said, you know what it is. And um, according to the prosecutor, my son couldn't get his money out fast enough before they shot him in the chest.
My son was shot in the chest. He fell on the ground. His friend, they shot his friend in the head. The friend didn't know he was shot and he, he ran um, to AJ and, uh, and didn't know what was going on. AJ looked up, according to his friend, AJ looked up at him and told him, you hold on, okay? You hold on, you live, okay? His friend said, okay. And AJ closed his eyes. And that was that. Today, I do not believe that justice was served. I did a lot of fighting. Unfortunately, the witness, they weren't sure if he would come to court. They didn't have any real physical evidence. They never found the gun. Um, unfortunately, the, the street didn't have any cameras. They only, they, they only had um, them on the camera at the end of the block when they turned onto Lincoln Street. So they didn't have any footage of the actual crime. Um, they didn't do any ballistics on the car. Why? I couldn't answer that question for you. So, in the beginning, they were talking about a plea deal, you know. We could go to trial, but, you know, probably it'll probably end up in a plea deal. And I said, no, it will not end up in a plea deal. We're going to trial. You know, I'd rather them get off fair and square than to give them some, you know, disrespectful-ass plea deal. I just, you know, let them go to trial and let them get off fair and square. So, still talking about plea deal, I go and see Cory Booker, and I tell him about what happened, and I'm talking to them about plea deals. I had researched about plea deals. I had researched about the prevalence of plea deals and why. I'd uh, championed against the plea deal. I said, you know, a plea deal for what? A plea deal for murder and attempted murder? How, do, how does this work? So they were talking about 10 years. A possible 10 years of, of giving these murderers 10 years for both crimes, murder and attempted murder. So I went to go and see the mayor. I wrote a whole bunch of congressmen, lobbyists, all of these things. I was running around with my head cut off because I, I'm like, this cannot happen. So unfortunately, I got very sick from stress. Had uh, three bleeding ulcers, a cyst filled with blood. My liver was failing. My heart was having issues and rushed to the hospital. And while I was in the hospital, the prosecutor called me and informed me that her bosses were going ahead with a plea deal. So the next day, I, um, against medical advice, signed myself up in spite of what was going on with me. Um, went to the prosecutor's office and talked to them about, you cannot do this. You cannot, you cannot give them a plea deal. And this is before I even knew about the number. I said, you cannot do a plea deal. In this case, these people murdered my son and tried to murder someone else. You cannot give them a plea deal. They will murder again. They will. Because the actual shooter that shot my son actually wanted five years. And I said, okay, this is not his first merry-go-round. And so I fought and I fought with her and we back and forth in the prosecutor's office and we're fighting back and forth. And fortunately, I failed my son, and I lost. 
they went ahead with the with the plea deal. plea deal they went with it was the shooter the shooter gets eight years and a driver gets five in eight years my son will be 29 and they will be able to get out and have a life but I'll never be able to meet my son at 29 and so that's been hard for me because that wasn't too long ago. I heard that news three weeks ago. And I still haven't dealt with it because I just feel like I, I felt my son like could have fought harder somehow. But so that's what'll happen. Sentencing will be July 22nd. And I'll show up for my son. And I'll read my impact statement. And then people are coming from Miami and Indiana that are also parents of murdered children that either had justice or did not. And um, I'll listen to my son's memory be disrespected with a sentencing. And I'll sit there and feel like a failure. <laughs> this is what I'll do on the 22nd. We have to realize that, that these fallen soldiers here in Newark or New York or Chicago or whatever it is, we celebrate and we, we remember and we, we love and we post and we, we give so much attention to the, the magnificent spirits such as Nipsey Hussle, but we're losing so many Nipsey Hussles in our streets. Nipsey Hussle was 33 who knew who my son could have been at 33. We're losing so many people that could be community change agents. And I think it's up to us to make sure that these lives are not just statistics, but to get people to understand that these are fleshed out human beings, that they are lives, that these are complex human beings. These are people that changed people's lives on a smaller scale or even a bigger scale. And we have to be able to see these kids and these teenagers as, as, as human beings, as, as, as souls that, are, that are, are forging forward, that are discovering themselves and not just allow our children to just be an online article in RLS Media. We got to do better. We got to do better. For some people, these responses can be overpowering. If you feel the need to talk to someone, support is available. You can call the National Distress Helpline at 
985-5990, which is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year.